0: On this episode of Powered by Battery, we sit down with Bill Magnuson, the co-founder and CEO of New York marketing technology company Braze. Recorded at the annual Code Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, Bill tackles issues ranging from the industry-wide backlash against big tech, to lessons learned from his company's recent rebrand, to how Braze recently helped Burger King sell more Whoppers. Please have a listen. So bill welcome to powered by battery
1: thank you it's great to be here
0: All right. Well, let's get going. You're the CEO of a technology company called Braze, which is based in New York. Um, From what I can tell, you guys are broadly in the marketing tech sector with a focus on mobile. But, And pardon me for saying this, but when I go to your website, I read a lot of copy that has some jargon in it, like you're a customer engagement platform, you're delivering messaging experiences. So I have to ask, can you tell me in kind of plain terms exactly what you
1: guys do? So I like to break down the goal of our technology into two broad buckets. One is that we want to help you as a brand understand your customers, and then we also want to help you communicate with them. And in doing so, the goal is to build great relationships with them over time. And so when you look at what that literally means is that we're integrating directly into products, whether those are apps or websites or other sorts of backend systems, or maybe hooked into loyalty or even POS in some examples. And we're listening, we're actively listening to the consumer throughout their journey of interaction with your brand, you know, primarily in first party, uh, interfaces. And then through that understanding, we're communicating on channels like email push notifications or communicating in websites your SMS, um, maybe through you know WhatsApp for business or other sorts of uh, you know one-on-one communication and helping really orchestrate all that. And the reason we like to talk about experiences is because you know we want the messaging to not just be a transactional surface-level interaction. We want to actually deliver an entire cross-channel experience that's been unified across all these different touch points. It's cognizant of what the customer cares about. And in doing so, you can really help build a lot of enduring value in the form of long-term relationships.
0: Okay. So when, when you go in and you, you know sell a customer on the value- Value of this technology, are you typically replacing another product or products or are you doing something so completely new there really aren't any direct competitors?
1: So it, it definitely depends because when we go into new projects, we're often in more green areas. You know, as an example, a lot, if you go back, you know, circa three years ago and look at most of our enterprise engagements, they were primarily on the mobile teams, which were almost always, you know, brand new deployments, new installations. We've also had, as an example, email as part of our platform since the very beginning. And so more and more, you know, when we go into an enterprise, they're gonna have an incumbent that's sending email. They probably aren't gonna have an incumbent that's doing mobile engagement. And it, what we really represent is a new generation, new way of thinking about this entire customer engagement space. It's not the silos that are broken down by which channel it is. It's really, how do I deliver these experiences regardless of channel, you know, kind of, I, we don't even like to say omni channel or anything like that. It's really just like the idea is that you're trying to deliver a customer centric experience. Okay. And so we often go in and we'll actually sometimes replace multiple vendors. We'll sometimes replace home-built systems because, you know, people have really graduated to the point where they need to take a more sophisticated look at how they're communicating with their customers. Cause the stakes there are very high and the potential ROI is very high. And so when we go into a new organization, it can often be all of the above, which is that we're greenfield for certain projects where they've never really used that as an interface to talk to customers before uh, or to understand them we're replacing you know legacy vendors who are doing things like sending email and sometimes we're um, you know augmenting or upgrading internal build systems so that those engineering teams can then focus on you know more business specific logic and more advanced and sophisticated personalization rather than the nuts and bolts of the customer engagement itself great.
0: Great. Okay, I think I get it. And maybe we can tell the story even more in depth through an example. Um, There was a story in Adweek, I think a couple of uh, weeks ago actually, about how your technology helped drive a recent Burger King ad campaign that basically helped them sell more Whoppers, I guess, but in kind of a strange way. So how did that all work? And what part did you guys play in that campaign?
1: You were referring to the Whopper detour campaign, uh, which was actually run uh, last year during Q4 around the holiday season. And this was a really exciting one for us because it was a great opportunity to see a creative vision come to life through the use of technology and not just ours, but actually a whole ecosystem of modern technologies. And so when we're talking to enterprises today in 2019 and, and beyond, you know, it's more than just What is this point solution that's going to do customer engagement? It's really what is the entire technology ecosystem that you're using to, you know, let's go back to that, understand customers and then talk to them. And so with Burger King, we have this great example where the digital agency that they were working with, which is a team out of New York, uh, they actually had conceptualized this Great campaign in advance, and the way that it worked was that you downloaded the newly released Burger King app. You would go to a McDonald's, and they a geo- McDonald's a McDonald's. <laughs> so they geo fenced fourteen thousand McDonald's in the United States. Oh my gosh! And if you were within six hundred feet of a McDonald's, you could order a Whopper for one cent. That's really clever. Okay. And then and then you would give you directions to go pick it up at a nearby Burger King, right? And so the creative agency came up with this idea, but the technology that it takes to do that, to kind of inform the customer, to have the geofences, to trigger the messaging in it, to kind of guide them through the user experience, to be able to do real time modification of this while it was happening. You know, they, they just, they didn't have it in their tech stack. And so they actually kind of set out, they wanted to upgrade the Burger King application itself from something which up until that point had largely just been a coupon delivery device to actually something that would be, you know, more multidimensional interaction. It would be able to uh, take digital orders and things like that. And they paired that with a look at the marketing side and really were like, how can you combine together a really great product experience? with a really great you know, creative marketing campaign. And the results were amazing. They actually got a million and a half app downloads during the campaign. They went from being number 686 in the Apple App Store and number 464 in the Google Play Store and launched all the way to number one. They were ahead of Facebook, Instagram, YouTube for a time. Uh, they actually maintained the number one spot in the food and drink category for more than 10 days. And there's actually, from people that downloaded during that time period alone, they expect to see more than $15 million this year in uh, mobile ordering in the app just from those customers.
0: So the idea is your Whopper maybe only cost a cent, but they're making more money and increased volume and people are buying fries with that and other things like that.
1: And they're, you know, it's, it's training a new habit, which is like this mobile ordering and it's getting them this more engaged audience and a new place to understand people and talk to them. Right? So when you kind of go back to this, you know, we're really integrated into that product lifecycle and we were instrumental in helping them deploy this one campaign. But the goal isn't really just that transactional interaction, as fantastic as it was. You know, the long-term goal is really how do we use that as an opportunity to have people really understand what it's like to interact more meaningfully with the Burger King brand, and then how does that drive value over the long term? And so we were there as well to help run follow-on com- campaigns. They actually followed up a couple weeks later with twelve days of Cheesemus, and you know that was a campaign that helped <laughs> with really strong retention from all of those people that they had acquired during the Whopper okay. detour campaign. And now they've been able to follow up, you know, if you've been paying attention to Burger King recently, they're starting to challenge Starbucks and and go after the coffee market more with other types of promotions. And they've, they've kind of had this rolling thunder approach. And what they've been able to do is utilize marketing technology that's been integrated into the product experience to really continue to deliver great experiences to their customers and and cement those relationships.
0: And so Bray, sorry, sorry to interrupt is helping to figure out where to send these messages. And I'm I'm assuming you're part of kind of a broader stack of technology that they used. Yeah. So
1: I think the, A really good way to think about Braze itself is as this engagement stack, where at the top, we're trying to understand people. And then it kind of goes through these different layers of the stack. So at the top, you're ingesting data, and then you're trying to classify that data against your understanding of the customers to figure out, you know, what should they be eligible for? How should I interact with them? Then you go to orchestration, which is where you're kind of deciding when and where am I going to communicate? Then you go through a personalization layer where you're trying to figure out what you're going to say. And then finally, the actual delivery and the action layer where you're going to deliver the messages. And what Braze does is it actually vertically integrates all of those layers together into one offer. So that in a turnkey SaaS solution, you can orchestrate and run all these campaigns all the way to the delivery, whether that's inside the application or it's outside the application or it's integrated with a web experience or or whatever it is.
0: Okay, amazing. Amazing. And so just taking a step back to maybe talk about how you got into this as an entrepreneur and as a techie. Um, You went to MIT, I'm thinking when you were at MIT you probably weren't thinking you were going to help Burger King sell more Whoppers, um, as noble as that sounds, so tell me about your background and where you worked before Braze, how you met your co-founders, and how that all came to be.
1: Yeah, so I uh, attended college at MIT. I was actually just there uh, last weekend for my first reunion that I've attended, uh, which was great to be back on campus. Uh, But I was computer science there, both did my undergrad and master's. And right around when I graduated, I went and worked at Google on a a project uh, with Android and Google research. And that was just as Android was coming out. You know, the the G1 phone was still, you know, the very first Android launch device. I I had one. Uh, the MyTouch 3G came out that summer, and it was really the beginning of seeing this wide-scale smartphone deployment. And so through that experience, I really kind of. Had this growing conviction that mobile was fundamentally going to change the world, change our relationship with technology, change our relationship with commerce, um, and and that conviction really stuck with me. And so I kind of my journey uh, was that I went to Google after I finished my undergrad. I actually ended up then being able to do my master's work back at MIT on the research project that I was doing at Google, uh, which was a visual programming language for building Android applications called App Inventor for Android. And we worked in collaboration with a whole bunch of different uh, university computer science programs in order to use it for, you know, largely educational purposes. And then I went from that to actually worked in the finance industry briefly. And, you know, then go to about mid 2011. So we're a little bit under a year and a half later. And I had been in the finance industry, and I just couldn't help kick this feeling that I was like, gonna, you know, the whole world was changing. And I was there right in the beginning. And like, what was I doing? you know, here in the right. finance industry. I, I wanted to go actually start a new company. And, you know, I, I've always had a really strong affinity for the, you know, global financial system and our economic environment. And I love the complexity of it and really, um, you know, love the challenge of trying to understand it and work within it. But, Mobile was too exciting to ignore. And so okay. um, my co-founder uh, and CTO, or current CTO, uh, John Hyman actually was a coworker of mine at Bridgewater. Okay. And the um, founding CEO was Mark Ramazian, mm-hmm. uh, who was someone that I m- ended up meeting entirely randomly through an encounter on a street corner uh, that led really? to us being introduced. And all three of us in mid 2011 decided to quit our jobs and move to New York and you know get started on what was then called AppWay.
0: Okay. All right. So I wanted to, that's an interesting segue because the company was originally called app boy. I want to know one, what was the genesis of that name? And then two, why did you guys decide to, maybe the answer is it was a terrible name; we needed to rebrand, but you did do this big rebrand somewhat recently. So I'd love to hear about that. And that might offer some lessons to other founders who are going through that same process.
1: Yeah. So the, the story behind the origin of the name is not that exciting. It was basically, you know, our, our, uh, Founding CEO already had the name from a prior business oh, venture that he had worked on, um, and the origin of that is even less exciting, which is that he apparently was just searching for names with app that began with app, and you know it was available go. for eight dollars, and so he, right. okay. um, you know, he bought that, and and we kind of defaulted into it already had eleven thousand Twitter followers, and it already had like a, a presence. The BBC had referred to um, Appboy as one of the best sites on the World Wide Web uh, in two thousand nine <laughs> or two thousand ten, and you could still go find that article, even though it's referring to a, a totally different company, right? Um, right. But, uh, you know, it already had a little bit of brand presence, and so we just decided to keep it. Sure. And, you know, go ahead five years later and the name was really pigeonholing us in terms of how we represented ourselves in the market. We had always been, we had always had this much broader understanding than just being an apps. We had been sending email for five years. We had already expanded to the web several years before that. And the company vision was really about, you know, building these stronger relationships between brands and their customers through the use of technology. And so we wanted to really have a name that, could represent that and braise is actually it's a verb it means to bond or to join with great strength and so you know it's it's a great I think representation of what the goal of our company and our technology is is to really bring together brands and their customers and give them stronger relationships
0: okay lessons that you, okay lessons that you learned from the rebrand I mean we went through one recently a battery and um, sometimes it's a long process.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was our third rebrand actually, uh, where we kind of refreshed the logo and the colors and everything. But it was the renaming itself was obviously a whole nother level um, for that. And it was an interesting experience for us in terms of the stage that we were at as a company, because I think that when we've looked at a lot of other renames that have happened, they're either very large companies that can throw, you know, a lot of resources at it, or they're very small that don't really have scale yet. And we were kind of in this in-between state, you know, a little, little bit of the the Goldilocks stage, I think, for a rename. And I think that, you know, a big thing was just that in terms of advice is to just make sure that you are, are, are being careful and methodical about it because it does really matter. It's something that's going to stick with you for a long time. And, um, you know, one of the really interesting things to me about the going through the actual naming process was that in the selection process, the we worked with an agency for naming. And one of the things that they did was they tried to get you comfortable with, after the final round, you had to kind of leave that with a number of names that you would be comfortable with. More than the, one. Yeah, and the reason for that is because it's, it's uh, very difficult to kind of do a broad global survey of every possible name to figure out like, am I gonna be able to get the trademark here, am I gonna be able to buy the domain? You kind of need to really decide to go and do that. And, and it's expensive and time consuming and it's entirely possible that the name that you decide on you might end up with you know cultural insensitivities in some language that maybe that you didn't you know notice at first or maybe you can't get a hold of the domain or maybe it's like trademarked in you know France and you just didn't catch that in the original surveys and things like that. And so that was a little bit of a roller coaster for sure.
0: What what was it like working with the outside agency? Just because in my experience, you know, you're a highly technical, scientifically based person. And sometimes with these kinds of marketing projects, things can get a little touchy-feely sometimes. Did you feel like you were able to strike that balance and... Work it out.
1: Yeah, I, I think I really like the approach of the agency that we worked with and the company is actually called Lexicon. If you go look at their portfolio, they're responsible for a lot of household names, things like Pentium and Dasani and Febreze and Sonos. Mm-hmm. And and so going into it, you know, it was uh, a, a kind of professional relationship where they certainly bring a respect and a process to the in, the entire thing. You know, it's not just like people brainstorming in a room and throwing, you know, names at a wall. Um, definitely a lot of experience there. One of the interesting things I thought uh, about their process, though, is that they actually split their uh, brainstorming groups into three different segments, one of which they give full context with your existing company name and what you're doing, et cetera, one of which they give partial context, and then another of which they give no context at all and are just, like, come up with random names. These are focus groups, you
0: mean? Yeah, they well,
1: it, they're, they're employees at the agency. Okay, and, okay. And, and so they split them into these three different groups, and then they intermingle the names, and they don't tell you which ones came from the people that were fully informed versus the ones that, oh, you know, had no no idea. And so for all we know, we did end up with a name that came from the people that had no idea what our company did. Uh, but then there were also a number of other things that they did um, that really helped me from a technical standpoint, which is if, if you look at the word app boy as an example, that P and B sound both require you to make the same motion with your lips. And so it's like hard to say that. It's hard to kind of enunciate it. And it didn't pass what I refer to as the loud bar test, which is, I couldn't tell you how many times it's like, oh, I work at app boy. Oh, you work at Apple? It's like, oh, yeah. no. And then you're like spelling it out for people. And and a big part of that is just because it's it's linguistically not A good name. Yes. And you know that was something where I appreciated that when we were working with a naming agency we were able to skip over that stumbling block. You know they were never going to come to us with a name that you know had obvious problems with it Uh, and they also had you know the ability to do some of that pre-screening in terms of cultural appropriateness and looking at meanings in other languages before they brought you know a lot of the names to you. All right
0: well they sound like a great firm. Um, Just following up a little bit on your being technical one other issue I wanted to talk to you about is kind of being a technical founder and the role of a technical founder today. Um, you know, obviously, I work at a venture capital firm, and I feel like there's always been a debate, you know, for decades about can the technical founder stay as CEO and can he take the company, you know, all the way? We have examples of that working out. We have examples of that not working out. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you think about that? And we'll talk a little more in depth about le- your leadership style and lessons that you've learned and, and how you're growing as a manager. But But talk to me about that conundrum. How do you feel about that?
1: I, mean, I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Uh, I, I think that the question is, can people learn quickly enough in a changing environment? And so one of the things that I really like about being in the CEO role that is similar to being a technologist is that in a fast-growing company, you're always solving new problems in a dynamic environment, and you also are doing it with new tools. And so when you're a technologist, you're in an environment where the tools that you have available to you are constantly changing whether you're building them yourselves or your team is or the kind of outside technical community is building things and open sourcing them or you've got new tools that you can kind of compose together um, and build new systems out of them. And the challenge of being a CEO is very similar. You've got a dynamic environment around you that's changing. You've got new capabilities that you're building within your own business that you need to go and, you know, exercise. You're building abstraction layers. You're building scalable foundations and things. You're building frameworks and processes for dealing with things. And you're always solving a new set of problems. And so I think that's one of the things that I really like about the challenge. And now this question of like, can we take the technical co-founder or do we need like a seasoned CEO? It's right. like, well, are we really just asking ourselves what did they spend their 20s learning? Like, did they learn code or did they like, you know, go to business school? And, and, and really, if you kind of take a step back from that, you're really just asking yourself, can the technical founder, you know, learn as the business is scaling? And the reality is that I, I think that, you know, a person that started out with more of a technical background is gonna have similar challenges to someone that starts out with a business background once the business gets to a certain point, because you're you know, you're evolving through new frontiers and you know the new market environment is always changing. And certainly there are lessons to be learned, but I, I think it's really a question of can people, you know, learn and adapt and evolve quickly enough to match the scaling of the business itself.
0: Right. Because what worked 20 years ago may not work today. Absolutely. All right. And you are an especially young CEO. I think you're only 31, so you're still kind of learning a lot. What, what are you doing specifically, I guess, to try to become a better CEO? Are there specific, um, things that you're working on? I don't know how you prioritize things. Talk to us about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, the most important thing is to always be learning. And a big part of that is to always be listening, right? Have your ears open, make sure that, you know, you've got enough exposure to a diverse array of topics and different dimensions of both how your business runs, as well as the technology space that you're in. Um, You know, having foundational understanding in in things like economics and business and, um, you know, operational processes and things like that, uh, I think is really important so that you can, you know, really learn more quickly and scale more quickly. But in general, I think it's, it, it really, the most important thing is making sure that you've got the right mechanisms in place, that you're always kind of informed and able to learn and continually uplevel yourself across multiple dimensions.
0: Are there specific leadership challenges or company building challenges that you're dealing with right now that you would want to share? I mean, we recently had a big CEO gathering and at least half the program just dealt with culture hiring you know, retaining good employees, swapping out ones that were good for for people who could take the company to the next level. What is that top of mind for you?
1: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. you know, and there's two parts of that. One is our company stage. So we're at about three hundred and fifty employees now. Um you know we're uh, we're actually focused right now on a public company readiness goal, which is not like, Go IPO at a particular day, but rather we want to have internal systems, processes, controls, and personnel that will allow for us to withstand the scrutiny of the public markets. And so that's something that we're working on this year. So definitely making sure that we've got the right leadership team, we've got the right board, we've got the right you know systems and controls and processes in place uh, in order to do that is top of mind for me right now. Uh, I think that you know hiring and retention and the team is always so important, especially when we're in these fast changing, really competitive environments. And you know that's something that should always be top of Mind it's particularly top of mind today because we're you know we're we're still in the longest running bull market of all time. Unemployment is at record lows right now, uh, you know, especially in these industries that we're in and, and the cities that we're in. And so you know that's something that I think should be occupying a lot of time for for all different leaders. And then you know for us in particular, you kind of layer that stage uh, that we're at over the top of it, and that quickly becomes my uh, my one of my top focuses. And just
0: recently, I think you hired a new CMO and a new board member who's pretty well known, right?
1: Yeah, so. Uh, we were we actually announced them both on the same day uh, a couple of weeks ago. So we have a new CMO, uh, Sarah Spivvy, who joins us most recently from Bizarre Voice. So she's actually been uh, CMO at uh, two prior companies as they've gone public, uh, which is a, you know exciting experience for us to bring on board. And she's only about three and a half weeks on the job right now, uh, but she's you know been. She jumped in uh, to the deep end of the pool immediately. And she's been doing a fantastic job. And then we also were fortunate enough to bring on Phil Fernandez, uh, who was the founder and CEO at Marketo. Uh, and so he actually joined our board as our first independent uh, that joined our board. It, it was previously me and uh, the lead investor from every single round of financing we've ever raised. Uh, and so you know we're re- really working toward uh, board independence as well to help with that top level governance. What
0: about I know it? I'm interviewing you at the annual Code Conference, um, put on by Vox uh, in Scottsdale, and I, there's always a big focus on diversity and inclusion at this conference. I think Kara, you know, there was a year where she asked every single speaker about, you know, what are you doing about this? When you think about building your board, adding more independent directors, adding more executives, how um, how are you thinking about diversity?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, we always start at diversity of you know perspective and viewpoint, um, both professionally and personally. And I think it just makes for stronger, more durable, more creative, more capable, you know, better executing teams. And so that's a, a vital importance for us as we're growing. And, and you know, to some extent, uh, our our board that I have, that's all of the leads of all of the investors we ever raised is all male presently. Uh, and a big part of that is because there's a massive diversity problem in the VC industry as well. Um, but absolutely, as we're bringing on independent board members, and I actually have the option to choose who's going to be on my board, right. I guarantee you it will not look like that. As I, you know, continue to bring bring people on, uh, and the same thing in our leadership team, you know, making sure that um, we've got, you know, across the C level as well as across, um, you know, the the next stage of leadership and all the way down, and just making sure that you know diversity and inclusion is is both that we're bringing in diverse talent, uh, again, as I said, both professionally and personally, uh, as well as making sure that we've got an inclusive environment. That means we can retain those people when they come in.
0: Right. How how does being based in New York play into this? I mean, we're you know, I'm based in the Bay Area. We always talk about the talent shortage and the high prices that smaller companies are having to pay for top talent to compete against Facebook and Google. Obviously, New York is not a small market for tech now. It's maybe the second biggest one in the US. So wh- how, are you finding the people you need in New York? Are you having to pay higher salaries? Is it more competitive?
1: I mean, I, I, so, you know, relative to a lot of other cities, I think we pay more, but relative to somewhere like San Francisco, you know, it's, it's, it's competitive. But I would say that from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, uh, being in New York is fantastic because, you know, we, if we go back to both the personal and the professional diversity, New York is not a one industry town, you know, far from it. Uh, And, you know, we're able to actually recruit talent from all different kinds of industries, whether it's, it's fashion or it's commerce or it's the finance industry or it's publishing whether that's digital or print you know people can kind of come in from all different professional backgrounds and and that's been really fantastic for us to see you know just building out teams with this interdisciplinary talent and then similarly new york is a very diverse city you know there's a it's a very much a global cosmopolitan city i i saw a stat recently that i didn't fact check but i would believe (laughs) is that um you know there's more languages spoken in queens than any city in the world and you know that's that's something that new york really brings to offer to the business community is that you know and, and we see that in our own numbers actually Actually, the uh, the diversity uh, demographics for our New York office, which is where we're headquartered, and the majority of our employees are, are better than in the other offices. Interesting.
0: Interesting. And then just one more question on that. You mentioned you know, you can draw employees or potential employees from all these other industries. I'm assuming some of those also represent customers, like the finance industry and the media industry. Does being in New York give you a leg up, or do you think offers you a somewhat different perspective when it comes to selling to bigger enterprise clients?
1: Yeah, I do think when you go back through our history that we did have an advantage and that you know, when you look at actually a lot of our um, startup competitors that were there along the way, and I think that we've really kind of broken out from the pack over the last couple years, but we did have one, it didn't feel like an advantage at the time, um, but we weren't in the Silicon Valley echo chamber in the early days. And I think that a lot of our early, uh, startup competitors actually ended up with largely digital first, largely startup customer bases. And, you know, they, they kind of er grew those customers early, but they didn't really build the scalable foundations. And as we started to really take the shift towards selling into the enterprise, we were years ahead of all of our startup competitors on that. And part of that was that we didn't have this like easy, you know, all sitting right on our front doorstep, you know, market that was already growing alongside of, we actually are, from, you know, our backyard was all these large enterprise companies. And so we really were forced to mature from that standpoint earlier than a lot of our startup competitors. And now as this market has been one that, you know, we're coming up on our eight year anniversary now, and I think it's one that's going to continue to, you know, grow. And we're, we're still in the early days of it, that having that more long-term perspective, investing in those things early has absolutely been a competitive advantage for us relatively.
0: So when you think about continuing to grow, raise, and innovate, I just wanted to end with a question or two about kind of your sector, marketing tech generally. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been, you know, Battery has a long history of investing in this sector, um, but certainly, you know, the rules of the game have changed quite a bit. We're you know, just thinking of GDPR in Europe. I think California's got a law that's kind of similar that may go into effect or may have already. Talk to me about kind of where maybe the challenges and opportunities you see broadly in this sector.
1: We represent, I think, a new. It's interesting to me that this is so new in terms of focus, but we're really trying to focus our clients in on understanding first-party relationships and communicating on these first-party channels. So when you look at marketing tech, we still get lumped in with ad tech quite a bit, Um, and even within marketing tech, we are not in the acquisition side of the house, right? We're really in this this retention, engagement, um, after acquisition, and that has a lot of impacts. Like one is that you know we're when you are storing data with us, it's really, it's it's your data. You know, we almost act like a cloud database to that extent. And there's nothing being shared with anyone else. And it's all within that first party data ecosystem. And that lets you actually, I think, use a lot more creativity in terms of the marketing campaigns that you're going to run. And, and it lets you integrate the marketing alongside or the marketing goals alongside your product goals, which I think leads to better outcomes. And then when we look at, you know, our customer base, I think it's been really great for us to take that stance because we've been on the right side of history. You know, as GDPR came along, you know, that wiped out a lot of these companies that were kind of being bad actors in the privacy space. And, you know, it was certainly something that we had to go through from a compliance perspective, but we come out the other side relatively stronger as more scrutiny gets placed on these strategies as, you know, privacy regulation, both legally, as well as the policies of the app stores and such continue to evolve. You know, there's been a lot of work recently to, uh, when you look at things like advertising identifiers and cookies or the new sign in with Apple feature, which is proxying email addresses, like None of these things negatively impact what we do. We're still able to deliver our full feature set to our customers in the face of those changes that are doing things like obscuring third-party identity and such, because we're staying within that first-party, you know, that that first-party um, ecosystem.
0: Great, great, great. All right. Well, final question. Um, as I mentioned before, we're here at the Code Conference in Steamy uh, or Dry Heat, Scottsdale, Arizona. I think it's around 110 degrees today. Um, I know you're a regular attendee at this conference. Um, I've been for several years as well. And we were talking earlier about how kind of the tenor this year is maybe a little bit different. There seems to be a whole lot of uh, discussion about how can we get YouTube, Google, Facebook, Twitter to improve. What What are your biggest takeaways from the conference and to the to the really high-level discussions about
1: big tech that they're having here? Yeah, I'm you know, when you kind of look at these big tech platforms and kind of taking them to task for some of the unintended consequences that had, you know, that that they've unleashed on society over the last few years, it's you know, you look at a lot of the um, a lot of the nuts and bolts of the calls to kind of split them up and ask questions like, are they um, you know, acting like monopolies? Are they harmful to competition? We can really get into a lot of the nitty gritty on a lot of these things. And that's what's being discussed on stage in a lot of places. But I think that from a high level, when we look at these companies, they've amassed trillions of dollars in market cap. They're sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars in excess cash and profits. And a big part of that is due to the externalities that they've now imposed in our society. And so when we take them to task for this and they're like, you know, we're working on it, we need time. And, and there's been a lot of the, I think I've heard the same conversation about six times now with every single major tech giant, which is like, well, people say you should be broken up. What do you think about that? And they respond and they say, well, you know, the best way for us to solve these big problems is if we remain big. And it's like, <laughs> OK, maybe. But you're also sitting on, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in cash between you you could certainly be throwing way more resources at this than you are right now at your scale. You're not utilizing your scale to make this your number one priority and fix these things. And so, you know, from my perspective, I certainly understand that you, you know, you can't fix these things overnight. They are really hard problems. Um, But these are companies that are massively profitable, operating at massive scale. And quite frankly, I I think if we're going to take them to task like we should, and the expectations that we place on these companies that they place on themselves should be way higher than they've been operating. You know, they've been pursuing platform growth at all costs for years now and they were open about that move fast and break things should sound familiar uh and you know now they broke things and they're like we need time we need time and it's like okay we're gonna give you time because we have no choice but you know maybe the approach should have been a little bit different here
0: how but do you think we will see action from the government because that seems to be the you know every obviously the companies can invest and can try to police themselves but in the current political environment do you see more regulation
1: uh i mean we're absolutely going to see more regulation globally And we're certainly going to see more regulation at the state level. And we're also going to see the platforms taking action. And when I say platforms, I mean things like Apple, Google, and Facebook. I think are going to continue to change the rules about how people operate with them because they don't want to be opening themselves up to undue liability from bad actors in their right. ecosystem either. And so you're going to see all those levels. We've always tried to be on the right side of history. We've tried to anticipate. You know, where is uh, where are consumer preferences going? Because where consumer preferences are going is where you know to some extent journalistic preferences are going to go. Is where the state is going to go. Uh, and then you know, and and hopefully we'll. See see corporations move in that direction too a lot of times when they're at the scale and they're trying to defend their profits and you know meet the streets expectations it's hard for them to move uh until they're forced to and i think that that's what we're seeing and it would be nice if that wasn't the case but you know there's a lot of systemic uh or like systematic pressures that are kind of keeping that where it is so we are going to see regulation we should see regulation i think it'll actually make the entire environment better for companies and for for innovation and for customers and for our government so i welcome
0: All right. Well, we'll come back in a year and see uh, if that prediction came true. Sounds good. All right. Well, Bill Magnuson, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure.
1: Cheers. Thank you.